chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and appreciate all those that are praying as we try to put in the last finishing touches here uh, on our building renovation, and uh, just keep it in prayer, Lord willing, things will be in place. We have uh, a rather long text this morning, and... uh, I really feel that we need to take the time to read uh, the entire passage to draw our attention. So we're going to start in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. So verse 19, Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is, to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore a punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing? And hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. 
The book of Hebrews, by and large, is one of the most difficult books in your Bible to truly understand. Uh, I like to call it God's switchboard because uh, in the old days when uh, uh, the telephones were brand new, you had a person sitting there at a board and they literally had to take the line that you were on, unplug it from uh, uh, the holding bin and then plug it into the line that you were calling to make the connection. Uh, that took a lot of coordination. That's why mostly ladies were operators in those days, uh, because they had the patience and the coordination to plug the right wire into the right slot. And if you didn't plug that wire into the, uh, into the right slot, you, you would get someone else's phone call. And, and uh, it, was, it was quite a thing, and now that's all done electronically. In fact, I don't know how they do this, but they can take one wire and put a thousand two-way conversations on one line. Now, that doesn't make sense to me. But if you don't have the connections made properly, you don't get a phone call. You don't have communication. Hebrews is the book that takes every part of your Bible and connects it together. And what the, one of the passage that we looked at today, I mean, I, I stand before you, I, uh, I just feel that this is where the Lord wants me to preach today. And, and uh, I could actually preach an entire sermon on every point and several of the sub-points and uh, I could keep you here till next week, just going through this passage. There's so much in here, and that's not my intention today, so you can relax. Uh, we'll have you out for lunch, but we're going to have to move uh, very quickly, and, and we're going to have to move over some things, but uh, I believe that we can uh, get the picture that is here, and if you like a title or, or a theme to this message, it's simply this. We cannot go back. The Bible talks about those who go back into perdition. We we cannot go back. We must go to Christ. Again and again and again and again. That's the title of this morning's message. I think Brother Sam would like that. Uh, We cannot go back. We must go to Christ again and again and again, and you can just keep going on and on and on. That's the difference between someone who is saved and someone who thinks they're saved. What we have in this passage here is what God has given us to keep us going back to Christ again and again and again, that we would not be of those that draw back into perdition, but of those that believe to the saving of the soul. So many times 
Uh, we deal with people about their eternal souls, and there is no greater issue that must be settled than the salvation of a soul. And no one can settle that issue between you and God except you. Now, the pastor's job, uh, the duty, the ministry of the church is to aid in that process. But sometimes when a person finally gets desperate enough to get saved, they have so many layers of deception and self-deception. I mean, it's worse than trying to peel an onion. How many of you have ever had to peel an onion by hand and something was wrong with the first couple of layers, so you just kept going down through, and before you got to the good part, I mean, tears were falling on the counter, and you're, oh, it was just a terrible thing. But I'll tell you, if you're not willing to go through that process, you see, it takes a simple faith as a little child to get saved. But as we grow up, We mess up that simple faith. We complicate that simple faith. And and it takes a lot of work sometimes and a lot of tears to peel back those layers and get to the truth of the matter. And so what we want to do is we want to get started here this morning in verse 19. It it says we have some things. in, In this passage, it says we have... Boldness. Now, boldness is not rudeness. Boldness is not license to um, do whatever you want and everybody else can just go hang. You ever met somebody with that kind of attitude? Uh, That's not the boldness that is being spoken of here. It's talking about a rite of passage. It's talking about having the authority to be there. How many of you have ever been in a place where you weren't supposed to be? And someone comes up and says, "Uh, excuse me, you're not allowed to be here. Uh, Some places... You'll find yourself and they'll be pushing you up against the wall and putting handcuffs on you because you have no right to be there. Uh, when my uh, wife's family, be, before they were members of our church, they were out of a church in Cincinnati and the pastor was a pilot. And uh, uh, in the air, they actually have highways marked out Uh, electronically and by satellite and radar and all of this, just like we have roads on the earth, uh, on the ground. And you're not allowed to get out of the uh, those uh, those pathways, those designated flight paths. And as he was flying, he said, this is this is a little tough here. He said, I'm going to cut a corner. And he looks outside the window and there's an army jet flying right next to him. Please identify yourself. You're flying in restricted airspace. We are going to escort you to the runway. You will land now. 
if he didn't do what they said, chances are he would have never survived the flight. It's a scary thing when you end up where you don't belong. Where you have no right to be there. One of my favorite little stories, this was supposed to have really happened. Uh, one of our aircraft carriers was uh, sailing. It was a foggy night and they were approaching and they uh, said, this is the USS and gave the name of the uh, uh, thing and said, uh, we request that you move out of our path. And the voice came back loud and clear. Uh, this is uh, so-and-so. Uh, we request that you alter your path. And, of course, the man aboard the ship went back and called the admiral in, and he came in. He said, this is the United States aircraft carrier. We request that you change your course. This is the lighthouse, sir. We request that you alter your course before you run aground. I'll tell you what. Boldness in the wrong direction can get you into a lot of trouble. I don't care how many weapons you have on the aircraft, you're not moving the shoreline. Not much anyway. And you won't sail through it. But the Bible says here that we can approach, now look what it says here, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, I could spend the whole morning here, but you've got to understand the Old Testament tabernacle was divided. The temple was divided into two places. It was the holy place and the most holy place. When Jesus died on the cross and uttered those great words, it is finished. The Bible says that that veil in the temple in Jerusalem was rent in two, making plain that in that temple in Jerusalem, nothing was there. There was nothing in the temple but a white marble slab. The ark was gone. It had not been in the temple since the days that Nebuchadnezzar's armies sacked the city of Jerusalem. But the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that that veil was rent because God wants us to have access to His person. Be careful how you pray. I've met so many people and uh, they just go, yeah, but, you know, I really don't want to bother God with this. It's just not that important. Whoa, wait a minute. That's backwards pride. Are you going to take care of it all by yourself? Are you going to do something right without God's aid and His authority and His power active in your life? No. I've got to go there. Hebrews chapter 4. Boldness to approach the throne of grace that we can obtain. The throne... Uh, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not saying it right today. Let me get it. 
boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. God wants us. When we do not go directly to Him, we insult God. It's not the way it ought to be done. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, we have boldness to enter into the holiest. How? Through the one-time offering of Jesus Christ. It's through His blood. That is to say, Jesus became a man and never sinned and fulfilled every requirement of the Word of God that He might sprinkle His blood upon the mercy seat in heaven that you and I can stand before it and talk to God. Have you ever thought about that? You know, man in his wildest imagination has never come up with anything that is as good as the Bible is. If you could actually become like God and become His equal. I mean, I want you to think about this this morning. What kind of God would you be? Hello? If God was going to use this material to make a God, He'd be a pretty poor God now, wouldn't He? He's got something a lot better. He said, I have made the way clear so that you can come and talk to me directly. And when life gets pressure... And when circumstances begin to press down upon us and when we don't see a way clear, we refuse to use the boldness that God gave us to approach to Him. And we make a mess out of whatever we touch. You see, we have boldness. Jesus has consecrated that way through His own blood, that we, by a new and living way, can enter and talk to God. But look at the next verse. And having, we have boldness, we have an high priest over the house of God. Guess what? It is not licensed for you to do whatever you want. It is license, it is right, it is the privilege of serving as a priest under the great high priest, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you ever studied that? Study the service in the tabernacle, the, the, the service the duties of the priest in the temple. If his feet were dirty when he stepped into that tabernacle, he would die instantly. If he did not offer the proper type of fire, he would. two of Aaron's sons were burned up in their garments. Read it. It says they carried them out in their garments. 
God didn't burn the robes, just the men in them. Because they offered strange fire. They allowed that boldness there to cause them to do things that were against the Word of God. That's what that sin willfully that we're going to get to in a few moments is talking about. You see, I have boldness. I have privilege. I have the right. God has said that He will always be there to hear my prayers. You better make them worth hearing. Prayer is part of your worship to God. And I dare say, all of us need to work on our prayer life. But see, we have a high priest. He is the bridge. He is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He has opened that way. And if we're going to serve, we've got to serve under His direction and at His bidding As the great high priest, he has the right to tell us exactly how we ought to pray. Exactly how we ought to live. Exactly how we ought to dress. Exactly how we ought to talk. Exactly how we ought to think. Every part of our life is supposed to be worshipped toward God under the direction of the high priest. And when we step out from under that authority of the high priest, read your Old Testament. That's what it's talking about. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God will not allow His Word to go disregarded and disdained. We have a high priest, but we also have something else. Look here. And let us hold the profession of our faith without wavering. For He is faithful that promised. You know, oftentimes we'll use this terminology, there's nothing wrong with it. So-and-so made a profession of faith. We had a baptism. Little Shin got up here and she got baptized. You know what she was doing? She was telling us about her profession of faith. And we need to pray for those little ones. That their whole life will be dedicated to God. Amen. And I'm not in a hurry to rush children through the baptistry. In fact, I'm not in a hurry to rush anybody through the baptistry. Because I want them to have the issue of salvation settled before we deal with the baptistry. Amen? But this profession, we need to understand something. When you say, I believe in God, I believe in the God of this book, you're not the first one that's ever done that, my friend. This isn't something new with the Baptist church. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And you say, 
But they didn't believe in the blood of Jesus Christ like we do. No, they believed in God's revelation to them and they obeyed that revelation. And when they disobeyed it, God's judgment came in their life. We stand at the end of God's revelation. It is complete in this book. You know what? There's a thousand inventions of mankind that offer some type of redemption, salvation, a new leaf. They talk about all the same thing. In fact, I don't know who's responsible for this, but several years ago, uh, I began seeing a Catholic track. It's called Joe Hardhat. I wonder if it has anything to do with the unions. Um, anyway, uh, the little fella in the track says, Yeah, we believe in receiving Jesus as our Savior. We do that every time we partake of the Mass at church. You know what they're trying to do? Use the same terminology. But you don't receive Jesus over and over and over again. He doesn't die every time we have a service. The Bible says, Now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When I make a profession of faith in Christ, I am agreeing with what's written down in this book that it is finished. There's nothing left for me to do except say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I cannot save myself, but you've done all that is necessary to save me. And I'm asking you to save me and to take away my sin. You know, many people prayed those words. And then the next day, they'll pray them again. And the next day, they'll pray them again. The sinner's prayer is not another bead on your rosary chain, my friend. It's not a mantra you repeat until you feel better. I mean, sometimes people write songs, uh, and, and I remember Glory Bound used to sing a song that I, I prayed and I prayed, and finally I prayed through. Uh, that's not salvation, my friend, because your prayer doesn't save you. Jesus does the saving. You see, the Calvinist gets all wrapped up in that fact that Jesus does the saving and says, you don't even need to pray. The Arminian gets all wrapped up in the prayer and says, you don't need to worry about Jesus. He'll save you today and lose you tomorrow and get you again the next day. The Bible says that we have a profession of faith. We have a prescribed, described, historically traceable definition of believing only in Jesus Christ and allowing Him to do the work of saving us. That's a profession of faith. The Bible says that we need to hold fast to that. You need to remember when you got saved. Because as a human being, you're going to doubt it. As a human being, there's going to be a question. Because our minds don't work as well as we would like them to. 
That's a whole other sermon. But see, our faith is based on His faithfulness. And so we do what the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and He takes care of the saving. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power. But I didn't feel anything. Well, aren't you glad you didn't feel anything when you plugged in the hairdryer this morning? Because if you had, you probably wouldn't be here. At worst, you might have gotten a good burn on your hand. I mean, at best. At worst, it could have been really bad. But the power is there because it works. You know, one thing that you never had to ask when somebody walks in the church with a brand new baby. Was that baby born? You know, nobody asked that question. Because we know the answer. There it is. Goo goo gaga and all that comes lots later. But why do we, when somebody gets saved, do we have to go, did you really get saved? Uh, Are you really trusting in Christ? Why do we do that? I'll tell you why we do that. Because sometimes we don't see any signs of life. I'll tell you what. When we had little babies in the house, our little children, they had these baby dolls that looked really lifelike. I just couldn't stand to be around those things. Because you would look, and all of a sudden your mind's registering, little baby, and it's not moving. It's not moving! It's, it's a toy. But it looks so real, it just freaked me out. I just couldn't handle that thing. Uh, wrap it up and put it somewhere. Don't play with that thing in front of me. Uh, it's gotten better since we don't have little ones in the house anymore. I'm just not quite so attuned to that anymore. But I'll tell you what, when you make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, it's Jesus that does the saving. He gives you life. If you don't have life, you don't have a profession. That's what James chapter 1 and 2 is talking about. If your faith isn't living, it's not working. If it's not working, it's not living. If you don't have living faith, then you better stop and check. You see, we have a profession. It's not a subjective thing. It's not something that I feel. Oh, I wish I had a dollar for every person to say, Oh, preacher, I just feel I'm so close to God and I'm going in my mind and in my heart. No, you're not. You're disobeying Him in every part of your life. How in the world can you feel that you're close to God? You know why? Because we're not using the boldness to approach to Him. We're not operating under the authority of the high priest and that profession just simply becomes a bunch of words that we grab a hold of. 
Let me tell you something. It's got to be guaranteed in this book called the Bible for it to be a profession. Hold on to it. Because Jesus did the promise and the saving and He will never break His Word. There is no force in this universe that's strong enough to make Him break His Word. Amen? Let's read on. We have boldness. We have a high priest. We have a profession. In verse 24, this is going to be of great comfort. And let us consider one another. We got each other. That's what church is all about. Now, that could be scary. We got each other. And you know what each one of us has? Lots of problems. Lots and lots of problems. A lot more problems than we would ever want to admit in public. I am so glad that I don't have to sit on the other side of a wall and tell some man every rotten thing I've ever done. I'm so glad that I can go directly to my Savior. Amen. You see, the first part of this verse is easy. Consider one another to provoke. Uh, That we can get done. I tell people who are going to join church, listen, this is a church full of people. Uh, you're going to get upset. Somebody's going to do something. You know what? If you're around long enough, I'll do something. You know what? We're human beings. But that's not what that word provoke is really talking about there. But it is. That's why it's in your Bible. When we think of the word provoke, we normally think of it in a negative sense. Have you ever met somebody that just incited high blood pressure with their presence? Have you ever met somebody like that? I mean, you just got near them and you knew you were going to be on edge. You you knew that you were going to be irritated. You knew that you were just going to have to pretend that they weren't bothering you. We've all had people like that around us. Well, they're provoking you to wrong things and wrong emotions. Well, let's look at what it says here. It says consider. You know what that word consider means? It it means to have thought process. If there's anything missing out of our day, out of our education system is that thought process is no longer a, a part of it. The kids all the time. I walk in, they're doing math, and they got a little calculator. I said, what in the world is this doing in math class? Oh, no, we're allowed to use a calculator. I said, well, what happened? Well, I'm doing, I'm doing, well, very few have done trigonometry and all of those things. I said, listen, you can still... Get the chart out and look it up. Put the calculator away. Learn how to think. When's the last time you did something and you knew you offended someone? You said, you know, I just wasn't thinking. Isn't that how we do it most of the time? 
Some of you remember Peter. He and I used to get into it every once in a while. We used to bump heads and, and I'd say, son, if it were anyone else in the world, I'd say you're doing it on purpose. But I know you're not. And he's sitting there, what I do, what I do. And the truth of the matter is, we don't think about each other. We don't think the way we ought to toward other people. When is the last time you actually thought, what could I do for fill in the blank for this person that would make them love Jesus more? When's the last time you've had a thought like that? Well, that's what this verse is saying. That we're to consider one another, to provoke one another unto love. Who are we supposed to love? God? Right? How do we know that we love God? 1 John chapter 5. When we love the person sitting beside us who's also a child of God. If we don't love the person sitting beside us... Pastor, you don't know what they did to me. And please don't tell me. I already know too much. But you know something? What could I do that would help, that would incite that person to love God more? The old saying is, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. I mean, horses can be very stubborn animals. And and they will literally, if you don't help them out a little bit, they can literally dehydrate themselves and get very ill or even die just because they're stubborn. They don't want to drink. I like what Brother Clayton used to say. He said, listen, he said, when you got a stubborn horse that doesn't want to drink... He says, you tie them up to the water trough and feed them. But before you give them the food, you throw a handful of salt in. And they'll just chomp up all that grain. And then all of a sudden, and they'll start drinking. Could you ask God to use you to do that for someone else? sitting right here in this auditorium. Say, I wouldn't even have the first thought. Good! Because if you had the first thought, it'd be wrong. You see, you got to have boldness. you got to go back to the throne. you got to operate under the authority of the high priest. you got to hold fast to your profession before you can help someone else love Christ. Before you can help someone else do good works. I remember the first time uh, Ted, who's now my brother-in-law, was in our church. And he was heard us talking about passing out tracts and knew that was something that he needed to do. And he's out there. And I think it was Philip, wasn't it? Or Stephen? 
Oh, it was Andrew, but Andrew was little back then. And Andrew, you go with Ted. He's like, me, lead him. I mean, and Andrew just gets out there. I think he was probably eight or nine, something like that, and just starts passing out tracks. And Ted's sitting there going, if he can do it, I can do it. Huh, I did it. And it was a real struggle for him. But he got provoked on the good works. And Andrew had no idea what was going on. No clue. He was just doing what he was supposed to do. You see, this provoking one another to love and to good works is not something you will do by sitting down and thinking of how you can do it. It will happen naturally as you ask God to help you love the person sitting beside you. That's how you know you love God is when you can put up with human beings. How many of you could give me a list of human beings you really don't want to put up with right now? Not sitting in the room here, but I mean, every one of us has a list of human beings that we don't want to put up with. We don't want to be bothered with. But that's not the Spirit of Christ. Now, the next one is connected. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. In my Bible, I got a colon there, meaning the phrases are connected. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, we have boldness. We have a high priest. We have a profession. We have one another. But we have one another in an assembly. Jesus intended His people to serve Him through His body, which is the local church. Now, if you want to know whether somebody's straight or not, ask them what they believe about the church. And if they'll be honest and tell you, you can evaluate pretty quickly whether someone's on the level or not. When someone says, well, Pastor, uh, uh, we're... Uh, moving to an area, or I have a family member so-and-so, and and, uh, would you find a church for me there? There's just... I I only need to ask a few questions. What do you believe about the Word of God? Oh, we believe all the versions are the same. Man, wrong answer. Without a foundation, how can you know what you believe? Let's let's move on to the next point. Uh, Well, let's not move on. We're done. They'll say, oh, we believe the King James Bible is the Word of God in the English language. It's the only one we use. I said, ah, good point. Now, what do you believe about church? Well, we believe that there's a universal, invisible body of believers that stretches out all over the world. Ah, Wrong answer. How can I provoke someone in Africa to love and do good works when I don't even speak their language and I will never, ever see them in this life? Say, well, we can send a missionary there, yeah. But he's going to do the work, not me. This is something I need to be involved in. You know what that means? It means i got to be connected. 
A church is an organic, a living connection, a living organism. It is God's plan A for earth. By the way, God does not have plans B, C, D, and E. Uh, There are not options. If you're going to serve God, it is going to be through a local church. And if you're not serving Him through a local church, you're not doing it God's way. It says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. In when the writer of Hebrews was putting these words down under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the work of the devil was already going on. Individuals were picking themselves up and looking around and saying, I know more about the Bible than he does. We'll just do it at home. Uh Uh-uh. That's not God's plan. God's plan is the assembling together of believers, duly organized according to the Word of God. And you can sit there and talk to me about plurality of elders and all of these things that are recorded in in our Bible, but when James in Acts chapter 15 got up and spoke, did anybody gainsay James, who was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem at that time? Uh, no, they didn't. He stopped the disputing. Why? Because he was the pastor of the church. There's a position. There was an authority there. It was God-ordained and put together. You see, there's a part of your Christianity. Well, every part of your Christianity is under authority. When you get saved, you put yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ. When you start serving, you put yourself under His authority as the great high priest. He is now your Savior. He was the sacrifice for your sins. He becomes your Savior. He becomes your high priest of which you are a priest under. He is the head of the body, which is His local, physical, uh, unique assembly. And he says, so much the more as ye see the day approaching. You know, this exhorting one another that's in here. One of the greatest ways that you can exhort another Christian is show up every service. You know what you do when you do that? Well, there's another one of those nutcases. They believe everything the pastor says. They're there every time the door is open. Don't they ever get a break? Don't they need a break from that stuff? No! It's the cure, not the problem. Amen? Amen? You see, the next verse is the one that everybody gets hung up on. It says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And you know, a lot of people read that verse and they say, Yeah, see? You get the truth and you choose not to do it, you lose your salvation. Is that what it says? It says, If ye sin willfully... After that, you've received the knowledge of the truth. 
If you reject the boldness that God gives you as a believer in Christ to approach into the holiest and talk directly to God, are you saved? No, you're not. If you reject Jesus Christ as your high priest and refuse to operate under His immediate, direct, and specific authority, are you saved? Can you continually reject and refuse Jesus as your high priest and be saved at the same time? No. Um, Can you say that my profession of faith in Jesus Christ was absolutely meaningless? It was just a prayer. It's really the inner peace that I have that saves me. Can you believe that and be saved? No. You see, that's what the sin willfully is talking about. You see, if you reject the truths that are printed in this book, you cannot be saved. There's no sacrifice for your sins because you've rejected it, my friend. Hello? Go home and read it. Spend some time with it. I don't know any sin that any Christian has ever sinned that didn't involve a willful disobedience of God's Word. Would you say, oh, me to that? But we don't lose our salvation. There's too many other verses in the Bible that you have to contradict to get there. So why don't we just put it into the context in which it is written, and all of a sudden, it's so simple that even a child can understand it. If we reject the truths that Christ has given us, if we turn our back on the things that He has given to us, then we fall into this category here. Let's read on. It says, He that despise, it says, but, I'm sorry. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. You know, that's one of the first signs of a false belief in God. I remember talking to a pastor many years ago. He said, I don't understand how you Baptists do this. If I believed what you believed, I'd go out and do whatever I want. It's it's the fact that I fear God's judgment that keeps me straight. I said, whoa, that's that's kind of scary stuff. That's not what's supposed to keep you straight. Our friendly neighborhood Jehovah's Sickness is run around saying. Yeah, those nasty people who call themselves Christians have always used hell to make you afraid so that you wouldn't serve God. Well, if you use hell that way, the Bible says some save by fear, pulling them out, having even the garments spotted by the flesh. But I'll tell you, the motivation of this book is the word love. If you're sitting around just waiting for God to blow you up, I want to challenge you. You don't have the faith that the Bible talks about. That's what this is. When 
when you refuse what the Bible simply says, you're putting yourself in the utmost danger, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And there'll come a time when you will tread God's Word underfoot so that you can believe what you want to believe. That's why all these religions have their own books. It's because the Bible doesn't say what they want to say, so they write their own books. Where would the Mormon church be without the Book of Mormon? Where would the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society be without all the tracts? They'd have nothing to hold on to because their profession is in their literature not in this book. And so we look here, and we go down. It says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but call to remembrance the former days. And it talks about suffering for the cause of Christ. And we get down here to verse 35. It says, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence which hath great recompense of reward. Here's the next thing you have. Confidence. Have you ever been a victim of a lack of confidence? And you're just standing there and you're nervous and you have no idea what's going on. All of a sudden, some jerk comes walking up just like they own the place. And they know what's going on and they do it just perfectly. And you're sitting here going, I wish I had what they had. Has anybody else been there? Now, you won't believe this. But when I was a teenager, that's what I was. I was that nervous guy. I couldn't even play a saxophone solo without my hands shaking so much that I would have dropped the horn if my neck strap wasn't holding it up. See, what happened? Well, I got some confidence. Where did you get that from? The Word of God, my friend. I'm preaching what God said. I can be confident because Jesus is going to keep His Word no matter what anybody does. Amen? Don't throw it away. You can start listening to the world and what do they do? They chip at your confidence. I'll tell you, I had some professors in Bible college that tried to chip at my confidence in this book called the King James Bible, in this translation. And boy, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a fearful thing until I just opened up and started studying. Started seeing the facts. Started seeing how much lies they put in there. There's a fellow in the 1870s named Shrivener. He was one of the great scholars in the English language. And this is where all your modern scholars go to find 125,000 errors in your King James Bible. He printed that in the 1870s. You know what he was talking about? He was talking about the careless and sloppy way people printed the Word of God. He wasn't talking about textual problems at all. And yet they take it out of context. I'll tell you what. When liars lie, just hold on to the truth a little tighter. Confidence. 
Don't cast away the confidence that God has given you in His Word. Because there is a great recompense of reward. Verse 36, for you have need of patience. How do you get patience? Those that are with us on Sunday night, James chapter 1. Say it out loud. Tribulation. That's how you get patience. You need patience. Here comes tribulation. Why do we need patience? Look what it says here. After that, ye have done the will of God. You know, most of us never get that far. It says, after that, ye have done the will of God. After you've exercised your boldness. After you've served as a priest under the high priest. After you've forsaken not the assembling of yourselves together. After you've chosen to provoke one another to good works. After you've holding fast to your profession. Then you'll receive the promise. You know what? God always waits a little longer than you think He ought to. I, I mean, I like what Brother Clayton said. He said, if I knew marriage was this good, I'd have done it when I was a ten. But it wouldn't have worked. you got to wait till God's time. Amen? And I don't think I've ever talked to a young couple that were anticipating the joys of marriage and didn't want to get married today. I remember when Brother Marshall was talking... With, uh, with his daughter, and he said, well, he's asked me if I could, well, I'm going to let you marry him. And uh, I'm going to say yes, but I'm going to make you wait until September. He thought I'd get upset about that. You know what? I was rejoicing because he said yes. Another three months? Hey, we can handle that. It's been over 25 years. That's three months? Nothing. Amen. Listen, you have need of patience after you've done the will of God. Because you can receive the promise because He that made the promise is sure. You say, how can I know that I'm not of that group? Well, let's number one, go back. Boldness. Are you operating under the high priest? Are you holding fast to that profession of faith based upon the words of God? Are you thinking about other people instead of yourself all the time? You want to know what causes depression? It's when you think about yourself. You want to have joy? Start thinking about others. Consider one another. But when you consider one another, ask God to let you do things that's going to incite people to love God more. What could you do to make somebody love you more? But it says, forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together. You know what I do with my children sometimes when they just get at odds with each other and they're just, you know, two of them will just get going back and forth all day long. One chair here. One chair there, and you're going to stare at each other until this problem is solved. You know what? I don't think it's ever been over five minutes I haven't caught them smiling at each other after a whole day of fighting and fussing and feuding. 
And you know, if you've just sat across the aisle from somebody you got a problem with, it's not going to be long till you're smiling again. Because the Holy Spirit of God's got to do that work. Forsake, that's what, you cannot forsake the assembling of yourselves together. These are the things that God has given us to keep us in His service. When we fail, I have boldness to approach the holiness, the holiest of all, and to confess my sins and to trust that He will be faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Well, once I'm clean, then I can serve under the high priest. I've got a profession that I can hold on to. I can start thinking about others instead of myself. I can start serving in that assembly as God would have me. I can even do it confidently without one self-esteem pill. Amen? Because i got a promise. And God always keeps His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so many things. So many things unsaid. So many points uncovered. Yet so much, Lord, we did cover. And Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit of God would have freedom at this moment to apply these words to hearts and lives that are here present. Lord, that we'd get a hold of these truths and just keep coming back to you again and again and again and again till you come back to get us. Lord, we'd let your word do its work in our hearts, that we may be called your servants. We ask that during this invitation time, we would do serious business with a holy God. We pray that none would be in this room of those that willfully sin, that willfully reject the truth, and still think somehow God's going to save them. Lord, we pray you'd peel back those layers of deception and self-deception that a true and honest and biblical salvation can engender the confidence to wait to receive the promise. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. The hymn of invitation this morning. 516, if you need the words, is your all on the altar? 516, as we sing, will you come? Have you longed for sweet peace and for strength to increase?